For those of you who don't know me, my name is Basil Favis. I am an elder here at uh, Westview Bible Church, part of the preaching team and uh, part-time actor. So, okay. Um, this morning we'll be talking about Jesus turning the tables in the temple. Um, I think we could have said when I turned this over, enough is enough. And you'll see that that theme kind of runs through also this morning. Um, I want to start by giving us a little bit of context. We know where we're going. We know what the scripture is going to be. We're in the book of John. The principal underlying messages of the book of John is about two principal points. It's Jesus as Messiah and Jesus as Son of God. And these themes run right through the book of John. We're now in John chapter 2. Last week, uh, Charlie spoke about the wedding in Canaan. This is following the wedding of Canaan. This is just at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And we have the story of Jesus flipping the temples. Uh, flipping, not the temple, but flipping, in some way flipping the temple too, but flipping the tables. Um, the story of Jesus turning the tables in the book of John is a little bit different than in the synoptic gospels. In the other gospels, we see the turning of the tables at the end of Jesus's ministry. And soon after Jesus turned these tables in the temple, he was arrested. And there might have been a relationship there. John places the story at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And also, right after, as I said, the wedding at Canaan. What is happening here, and if you were to look at commentary, N.T. Wright, for example. N.T. Wright looks at this and says, is this the same story placed in two different places? Or is John, most likely, actually talking about another story? And there may well have been more than one time when Jesus flipped the tables in the temple. N.T. Wright places it and says, let's take it as a particular story, where it is, as described by John, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. So the whole setting starts. Where's Jesus? He comes into Jerusalem, and he comes for the Passover, and that's where we start in the scripture. John chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus going to Jerusalem, what you have to understand is this is where the temple was. This is where the temple that held the very presence of God was. Jesus is not just going to some synagogue. He's going to the temple in Jerusalem. And he's going at Passover. Passover, imagine this, there would have been something people estimate probably close to 300,000 people in Jerusalem as Jews came to celebrate the Passover. And for those of you who don't know what the Passover is, the Passover is the celebration of God's faithfulness as the people of Israel left from slavery out of Egypt and it is a celebration of liberation from slavery, of liberation from bondage and God's faithfulness and a move to the promised land. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple courts, 
which would have been the outer courts of the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. What would have happened at this time is that there were Jews who were coming from many, many different regions. They would have been bringing money with them, going to the temple, and exchanging that money for a currency that the temple would allow them to use to buy cattle, sheep. This would have been a sacrifice that would have been done, and in some case, doves. What was well known at this time, and people who have studied the history of the time, is that there was very well known practice in those days that when the money was exchanged, it was exchanged at exorbitant rates to the profit of the people who were right there in the temple with the money selling this. So there was an abuse of, of people. There was an injustice here that was being done. The doves you're going to see are going to come up again a little bit later in the story. And why are doves mentioned specifically? Doves are mentioned specifically because there would have been a number of people too poor to be able to buy cattle or sheep or whatever it is to purchase a, a, a sacrifice a significant sacrifice, but they would sacrifice something and their doves were there for them to be able to sacrifice. And the people who would have bought the doves would have been the poorest in this culture. Most often women, and probably women oftentimes who were widows. So you take all of this together and you see what is happening here and the injustice that is being done. And not only that, according to some historians, the money that was taken here was actually stored later in the temple and that those responsible for the temple used that money with some of the richest in the population to be able to actually pay them, help to, to loan them money to pay their debts, and it created a whole cycle of debt and poverty. So this is part of what Jesus is seeing here. But you're going to see that there's actually also much, much, much more. So Jesus made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And in this scripture, and you're going to see a little bit later on, and this shows you also how important oral history was, there's a remembrance by the disciples. The disciples, as they're writing this, are looking back. His disciples remembered that it is written Zeal for your house will consume me. That scripture comes from Psalm 69, verse 9. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. So there's a lot to be said about this portion of scripture. 
There's some very important things that we're meant to learn from this. There are also some very definite misunderstandings about this scripture. And I want to start with the misunderstandings. One misunderstanding of this scripture, because this is an unusual way for us. This is not a way we often perceive Jesus, right? Going in here, this is, this is there's a form of anger that is being portrayed here. This is not a way that we often associate with Jesus. So there's a misunderstanding about this scripture. And one of the misunderstandings about scripture, of this scripture is, I read this scripture, therefore, violence is justified because I am right about this. I mean, you have some people that might go as far as to put a gun in Jesus' hands. Okay? But we have to look at this also and look it into the great context of Scripture. And we have to connect this with all the words of Jesus. This is not any story that is condoning violence. And in fact, some people will say that this was at time used as a justification for the Christian crusades by some. But Jesus, in Matthew 26, verse 52, when he is in the garden and he's to be arrested... And Peter, with a sword, cuts off the ear of one. Jesus stops him in Matthew 26, verse 52, and says, Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. This is not a justification of violence. A second misunderstanding of this scripture is, my anger is justified. Jesus did it. But what I want to talk to you about this morning is that this is a special type of anger that we are seeing from Jesus here. There's something called a righteous anger and there are destructive forms of anger. My anger is justified, Jesus did it. Another misunderstanding. James 1, 19, 20 tells us something about how we should actually be viewing anger. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So this is not a kind of a, you know, uh, you know get out of jail for free card for anger. Uncontrolled outbursts of anger, scripture is very clear about this, this is sin. And even in some cases, anger, if it gets to the certain extent, it becomes a form of abuse. And we as people of God and in churches, we are to categorically speak out against it. What Jesus is displaying here is a form of righteous anger. A righteous anger. I'm going to get to that in a second. Another misunderstanding about this scripture is that people will look at the scripture and say, well, there is an inherent evil associated with money. Okay. And you're going to see that that is not actually either the correct interpretation of this scripture either. <clears throat> it is the abuse of money, and money can be used to abuse people. But we know that God teaches us to organize and to care our finances and to use our finances actually to benefit others and to our community. I often think of Kent and Barb, who for years did their, you know, financial seminar here, where they were teaching us how to take care of the money 
and how to begin to even use it for others and to use it and to get out of a cycle of, 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 of slavery to money, actually. So it was teaching about how to properly use money, and it was beautiful because it was just done out of this heart from Kent and Barb, just a heart and a caring for people. So this scripture is not telling us that there's an inherent evil associated with money. So what was the motivation of Jesus for this righteous anger? What was the motivation? The motivation comes as we read through the scripture a little bit more, and it becomes very clear. In John chapter 2, verses 18 to 22, we continue the story. The Jews then responded to him. He's flipped the tables. He's chased the cattle and the sheep out. <clears throat> He's told them to take the doves out of there. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And I want you to notice one thing here, everybody. Look at the question that is being asked to Jesus. Nobody's saying, oh, what you did was wrong. They're saying, who gives you the authority? We'll come back to that in a minute. It was a power. Who gives you the authority to come? We're in power here. Who's allowing you? Where's your authority? There's a dominant power thing there going on. Jesus answered them and said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, again, a remembrance of the disciples his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So this scripture is telling us about the core motivation of this righteous anger of Jesus. Jesus, when he saw the temple in Jerusalem, temple, by definition, means a dwelling place of God. A temple, brothers and sisters, is where heaven and earth meets. The whole story of Scripture can be said by some to be a story of temples. When the, in the creation story in Genesis chapter 1, <clears throat> in Genesis chapter 1, if you read the creation story, there are some who have looked at the creation story in Genesis 1 and said that what it is actually also describing is a temple ritual. And that what God was actually doing when he created earth at the very beginning of scripture is he was creating a place where he could dwell among his people. God's presence then went to the nation of Israel in the Ark of the Covenant. And the very presence of God was held in that. And that Ark of the Covenant was then placed into the temple in Jerusalem the temple that was built by Solomon, and in the Holy of Holies, they were in the outer courts, but in the Holy of Holies, it was a dwelling place of God. 
And the temple story continues with Jesus. And you have to understand, Jesus is walking in. He is a temple. He is God. And he is coming and he is saying to his people, I am here. My temple will now be within the people who believe in me. We are in Jesus Christ. If you are in relationship with Jesus Christ, you are a temple of God this morning. You are a temple of God. So there is a temple story of Scripture. Charlie, when he was sharing from John chapter 1, he talked a little bit about Nathaniel being called. At the end of John chapter 1, verses 51, we actually have a description of what it means to be a temple. Jesus is telling to Nathaniel as he's calling him into relationship, he's saying, Jesus to Nathaniel says, I tell you the truth. And this is something he's saying to each of us. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. If we're here in a place of worship this morning, in our hearts, our desire is to see heaven meet earth. Our desire is to see angels, heaven, and the Holy Spirit coming upon this place. And we are raised into the very presence of God. So all of, temp all of Scripture, all of Scripture actually is a temple story. So now imagine Jesus walking into this temple. And what does he see? He sees people in the courts of the temple cheating others putting them into cycles of debt slavery. Anything about the relationship of God and what the temple was supposed to have meant to people has been flushed out. He sees complete corruption of the purposes of God. And that is, is that the temple is meant to be a call to be in relationship with our God. He sees a complete corruption of the purposes of God. And he sees this use of the temple as dishonoring. He also sees these acts of injustice. We talked about the significance of the money changers, the significance of the doves, the money used to keep people in debt. That was, I mean, this just adds insult to injury. And not only that, this is at Passover. 300,000 people in Jerusalem and Passover is this moment when people are meant to celebrate liberation, freedom from slavery, and the flight from Egypt. What does Jesus do? He walks into that temple with all of these things. And what we or I or any of us can understand is such a small fraction of what Jesus would be bringing in here. He would be walking into this and saying, enough is enough. Enough is enough. I don't know how many of you remember. Um, it would have been years ago. It's different now. But there was a cathedral uh, in, um, right on St. Catherine Street um, years ago that I, I think had gone into difficult times years ago. 
And on St. Catherine Street, the whole front of that church was just stores. I mean, you would walk down St. Catherine Street, and it were just stores, stores that had nothing to do with the community necessarily, just stores, 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 that's all, just a market. And you couldn't actually even see the place of worship behind it anymore. I don't know how many of you remember, it was right in downtown, I don't need to mention the church, it's changed now, but it was a large, one of the large cathedrals. And I remember when I saw that, that striking me, and I was thinking, I always remembered the story of Jesus turning the tables in the temple for some reason that came to me. There was another time when I was in Strasbourg in France and um, Kathy and I, we will like to go to theater or concerts from time to time. There was an organ recital in uh, a very famous church in, in, uh, in Strasbourg. And as you walk in, this, this church had an amazing organ, which is why it was there. But it was a church where, you know, the cross is at the front. This particular church would have had the ceremony where you would be looking to God and facing, you know, you would be facing the cross and reconciling yourself with God. And when we walked into that church, all the chairs had been turned so that they were facing the organ. And I looked at that, and my heart broke. I was saying, I love the music. The music is great. But this is a place that is meant to call God's people into relationship with him. God's calling. So whenever we make our places of worship or our lives into something other than a deep relationship with Christ, and what we are doing is that we are doing a disservice to the temple of God that God has put in us. That Jesus, in his life coming into us, has in us said, you are my temple. Romans chapter 2, verses 19 to 24 says, If you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? We're very pertinent to today's sermon. You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, and this, is written, this was written to the Jews in Romans, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Pretty easy to blaspheme the Gentiles. But God is saying that we are also the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are also responsible. And we are also called to do a cleaning of our own house as well. And if we were not if we were just to stop and think of this is about churches or that this is only about acts of injustice, it's more than that. We are called, we are called as people of God to listen to the voice of God and to do a cleaning in our own house. I wanted to talk for two minutes. You know, when one preaches... There's this combination of teaching and preaching, and 
I always pray, you know, that, that, that the Lord will just rise this into preaching because it's only there through the Holy Spirit that hearts are touched. But part of a sermon is also teaching. Very important part of a sermon is also teaching. And I wanted to just mention something here about righteous anger. How can we recognize righteous anger? And what does it mean? And what is its role in the Christian life? It's pretty easy for people to just say, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to call my anger righteous anger. But I want to give you this morning some characteristics of righteous anger. I honestly didn't pick this out of any book. I just tried to look back over life and interactions with people. And here was what the Lord put on my heart. The first of all, righteous anger, which has its place in the Christian life. But righteous anger is never principally about me. It's never principally about me. It is principally about injustice to others or to hurtful practices done to others in the name of God. These actions dishonor the Lord. Righteous anger is not from someone that is known to always be at the tipping point of anger. Oh, this person, you know, they're always angry, but, you know, well, maybe this is right. You know, righteous anger is not from someone that is known to always be or continuously at the tipping point of anger. I believe righteous anger is exactly the opposite. It comes from someone who's very slow to anger. That they're actually known for their love, their sense of love, and their sense of justice in God and understanding. And that when they speak with righteous anger, because they are known principally as people of love and justice and understanding, there's an authority that comes with that. Righteous anger is characterized by loving and caring people, loving the Lord, but are pushed to the limit because they are constrained by God's love. They are pushed to the limit by what they see. And they do say enough is enough, and there's a place for this in the Christian life. Righteous anger is enveloped in a deep love for people and for the Lord. And this, you may not agree with what the person is saying, but when righteous anger is given, it is a form of speaking the truth in love that is recognized. I was sharing this with Kathy as I share most of the sermons, and she was saying that she remembered a quote by Tim Keller. And this quote is, is a paraphrase. It's not the exact quote, but it goes like this. Tim Keller says, in order to be righteous people, we need to be able to express righteous anger as a response to injustices and deep wrongs. It is a response of God in us. You can flip this around the other way. And sometimes I talk with my, my daughter, and, and she's a millennial. And, and she'll often say, you know, why is the world that I live in so angry? You know, you just have to go on Twitter for a few minutes, and, you know, you, know, you, won't, be, uh, you won't have any doubts about, about that. And <clears throat> um, you know, a world 
There's a message for people here who don't know the Lord. There's a message also about anger here. A world that is turning around me, me, and me is going to result in all forms of destructive anger. All forms of destructive anger. Righteousness, righteous anger is never about advancing my own agenda. It is motivated by the love of God and love of others. And righteous anger is a form of speaking the truth in love. The scripture finishes in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, and we're just continuing in the same story, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. This portion, as it finishes, this portion on the turning of the tables in the temple in John chapter 2, tells us something. Don Carson, in his commentary on this part of scripture, asks the following question. Why was Jesus not immediately arrested by the temple guards for doing this? Important question. Why would Jesus not have been arrested? The reason that Jesus was not arrested, according to Carson, is that he was supported by the people. And the other thing that's very interesting, if you look at the way this story is situated, it's at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We had already mentioned it comes right after when Charlie was talking about the wedding in Canaan. But what follows this? Immediately follows it? Jesus talks to Nicodemus about being born again. And it is not just a Pharisee. This is a member of the Sanhedrin. What that means is, is that there was a form of righteous anger, and this had to have been probably also recognized by some, even those, some even like who would have been potentially Pharisees. In fact, I think you could probably go as far to say, and this is reading something into the scripture, but I think you could go as far to say that some people might have said, you know, it's about time someone did that. It's about time someone did that. So the question to us as people is not, we see Jesus in this, and Jesus is telling us something about temples, about our relationship to God, and the holiness of the temple of the Holy Spirit in us, and that we are called to do a cleansing inside of our own lives. But Jesus is also here in the story telling us something about what righteous anger looks like. And that righteous anger is actually a form of speaking the truth in love, and that righteous anger actually has its place in the Christian walk. The flip side of this, which comes up when we look at the reaction of the people and we look at the reaction of the Pharisees, because the temple guards were not called right away, probably for fear out of some, but there was certainly support for Jesus and the people. The flip side of this is how are we, as people of God, able to receive correction in love. There's a story for us in this as well. 
Are we able to receive a correction in love? It's hard. You know, people sometimes say, oh, yeah, love this, love that, you know, everything, yeah, that, doesn't that. It is really hard to speak the truth in love, to speak the truth in love. But we are called to this. It is also really hard to receive correction in love. But we're called to also be open to that. I will submit to you this morning that if we are able to put ourselves before the Lord on this, this will change the world that we live in. If we come as a people of God here and we are able to practice this in love, we will change the world that we live in. Nobody is talking like this in our society. Are we open to receiving correction and love? Reinhold Niebuhr, who is a Christian thinker who has wrote a very important book called Moral Man in a Moral Society, says that ethics and the practice of ethics is impossible without self-criticism. Oswald Chambers, in my devotional just on June 17, Oswald Chambers says, there is no escaping the penetrating search of my life by Jesus Christ. And the scripture I want to leave you with this morning as we go, and happy Father's Day to those who are out there. Let's have fun at this block party. It's going to be a great time. I love parties. But there is a message here for us as a church. The principal message of the turning of the tables is a message of temples. And you are this morning, each of us, if you've accepted Jesus into your life, you're a temple of God. You're a temple of God. Allow God to do his work in you. Allow God to use you to do his work in love. 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? May we be a church where heaven and earth meet. May we be a church where we see the angels descending between heaven and earth and we are raised in the spirit of God. May we be a church that knows about how to speak truth in love. May we be a church that knows how to receive correction in love from our God as we even ourselves cleanse the houses of our own temples and become the people of God that he has for us to redeem this community, to redeem this city. In the name of Jesus, amen. That was a good word. I got distracted that I was supposed to come up here. I was just thinking about all of that. Um, is anyone have thoughts, questions in the room? We have a couple things in the text line. Um, but I just got to say, I love what you're saying here. When I think of the, you know, that message, like, 
I've always thought of it just in terms of like what are the religious institutions doing that are wrong and there's definitely something there let's flip over those tables but I love this call of just realizing like we are called to be temples and like what's the tables in our hearts that need to get turned over and replaced with a real relationship that's just I gotta chew on that my friend good word uh so um yeah any any thoughts comments in the room before we go to the we go to, right here Megan as it's coming I'll just go ahead and read this one Megan you'll be the next question the um uh, here, this is this is kind of a, a tough one, actually, uh, or not tough, but but it's definitely thought provoking. Please comment on Westview's outer court being used as a carnival. You might have noticed we got a carnival thing going on right here. I, I'm not totally sure what the person's getting at, but I I think they're asking the question, perhaps like, are we are we doing the same thing with uh, taking God's holy temple, which they were changing money? and turn it into something that it shouldn't be. You might say like a carnival. This isn't the place for, for that sort of thing. You have any thoughts? I mean, I, I, what I would say that it's a good question. I mean, it's an obvious question even to ask. And, and I think that we need to ask those questions, right? Um, what this piece of scripture is telling you, what the Lord has really put on my heart, the Christian walk is about our motivation. You can actually take a very same event with the wrong motivation, and it is not, it should not be happening. So the question to Westview, and I know because well, I'm part of the leadership and I know we've talked about this and you heard Charlie this morning, this is a service, this is an outreach to our community. This is a way to welcome us warmly to each other and greet us back to church. This is a place to bring friends and even a call perhaps to invite them possibly to church. So yes, it's a wonderful thing, a wonderful, wonderful thing to be doing. And what happens sometimes to us as Christians is that we reduce the faith down to something material without looking at the motivation behind it. Beautiful. That's exactly it. That's one of the big things that Jesus definitely was overturning when he came was seeing religion as a list of external do's and don'ts that will define if you are correctly walking with God. And in so many things that Jesus said was, look at the heart, because God looks at the heart. And what are the heart motivations? And absolutely, if we had the carnival games out there in order to make money or who knows, I mean, that would be a bad thing. Our motivation is to show the character of God, who is a God of joy, a God of happiness, a God who wants us to be happy, and also to, to do something that would invite people and, and, and uh, hopefully lead them into relationship with God. So, yes, uh, our, uh, amen. All right, uh, Megan. So I, I really loved what you said about uh, distinguishing righteous and destructive anger. But a lot of people, I think, sometimes have that righteous anger and either don't know what to do with it or they act on it in a less than biblical manner. So how can we make sure that we are appropriately dealing with that righteous anger? I mean, that's really the key question of this morning. You know, um, all of these things, again, um, it is a motivation of God. It's a motivation of God in us. And it is a righteous anger that is done in love. What I think um, righteous anger 
because we're human and because we're going to get it wrong often, right? Um, we need the people around us to give us some indication. Um, I think that um, if you're a person, for example, that's known to be almost often angry and everything tips you over, um, you're probably not going to be the right person to be displaying righteous anger. There's, a, there's another type of anger that has to be dealt with. There are many destructive forms of anger that we need to call out as a church. And we are not, at, and that's why I wanted to go through in this sermon and to make it extremely clear that we cannot just sort of fake it. There's someone who has a problem with anger and they're saying, hey, I'm righteous in this. There are characteristics of what righteous anger is, and that is you will be known, as I mentioned before, as a person first of love and justice. You'll be a person that is known for being patient, incredible patience. And then when the time comes for this expression of righteous anger, it's because... Even the people there, when Jesus did this, they almost have said it was about time someone said this. There will be a response like that as well. So I think that um, um, we need to always be questioning our motivations. We need to also preach to ourselves. If God is calling us into, um, into this, um, we need to be sure it's not just about me. Because the sure form of destruction will be if it's just about me, which is a very easy place for righteous ang for anger to go, but it's not righteous anger. So I, I hear what you're saying. Um, on the other hand, we're meant to have a righteous anger about some things that we see. Because it's God in you. And God is saying this is an injustice. This is wrong. When you see people that are marginalized, people that are hurt, when you see people that are abused or caught into cycles of slavery, you have a right to be angry about that because it's not just for you. You're caring about the other person. I'm sorry, it's a long answer to... Um, but I, I, I think I hear the heart of your question. And the heart of your question is... Um, how do I do it properly? And to be honest with you, I think it's a problem we have with generally in the church. Like, it is so hard to speak the truth in love. How often does it happen that we just say, you know what, that's actually too hard. I'm not going to say anything. It's what most of us do. Or I see an injustice here, but what could I do about this? I'm just one person, right? So you let it go. And we let this slide off. God is calling us by the power of his Holy Spirit to be sensitive to him, to his place in this world, to others who are being hurt in this world. And he's calling us to respond. Some things will not happen without righteous anger. You know? It's... There, there's a, if I can just tell you, there's an interesting story here. I'm not sure how spiritual it is, but it did make me think about how sometimes targeted anger can be critical. There's, um, there was a program in the United States years ago for a combined fighter jet that was being designed for all the forces. 
So they had the Air Force, they had the Navy, they had the Marines, they had this. The Air Force wanted two people. The Marines wanted to be able to land on islands with one people. And they were going on and on and on and on and on. And no, it was so complicated, nobody could get anywhere. And what one person did is he said, you know what? I'm going to come in and I'm going to turn a table at this meeting and get angry. And it was kind of a, I mean, it's not a spiritual example, but it's an example that an anger, he wasn't angry at people, he was angry that we're wasting our time here. And he said, you know what, let's just shut this down, let's forget it. And everything changed. So what happens is, is that for us, righteous anger and you know what the scriptures would say was you know be careful because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God as in is this an anger that's stirred by a zeal for the Lord or is this just the normal anger that people feel but we certainly cannot just say that being angry is a sin uh, I just read um, Ephesians 4 26 I think says be angry but do not sin uh, we can be angry and not let that flow into sin. And one of the things that I do when I notice myself like getting angry, especially if it's directed at like a certain person specifically or a group of people, I have to ask myself, do I ever do this? Like maybe not this specific thing, but the heart motivations, what's going on here? Do I ever do this? And very often the answer is yes. Okay. And that causes you to kind of pause <laughs> you know maybe I shouldn't have this posture of like let them be cursed <laughs> you know um, and I think that's the the passage that Basil was reading in, in Romans 2 it's like you who what does it says you who uh, say don't do this do you do it <laughs> you know <laughs> like you who say we shouldn't do this uh, are you ever guilty of the same things and so um, that's kind of something that I would encourage you to 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 pause, you know, when you're angry and ask yourself, like, you know, do you do those same things? Who, who else in the room? Did I see another hand? Uh, okay, back here. can't see the lights in my eyes a little. We're getting a lot in the text message. Uh, I am sorry I'm not going to be able to get to, to everything here. Hi, Brother Marcel. My question is, we know that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, uh, 1 Corinthians 6.19. And Acts 1.8, we have the power of the Holy Spirit. And before and we enter into the establishment that we are working, we acknowledge the Holy Spirit. We yield unto the Holy Spirit. So if we are facing any adversity or any problem, uh, the way we respond 
to people, sometimes the boldness, the power of the Holy Spirit is manifested. Sometimes they look that we are mad, but it's the boldness. How can you describe boldness and anger? Because sometimes we respond to people with the power of the Holy Spirit. Boldness, not anger. Would you describe it, Ms. Brother Basil? Thank you. I mean, you know, we're definitely called to be bold in the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and the Holy Spirit envelops all of this. That's why I finished with that at the end of the sermon. Um, John, actually, in the book of John, speaks more of the Holy Spirit than, than any of the other synoptic gospels. It is, it is full of the Holy Spirit. So we are called to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You cannot speak the truth in love. Why is it difficult? We can't do it without the Holy Spirit. We are called to do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, we're humans, right? So we need certain things that are going to help us to understand, am I... Am I doing this right or not? Which was the question that was asked here before. And for something like this, because criticism can be incredibly destructive if it's not done right. Criticism, if it's not done in love, is a dividing of the powers of the individual. You are, if you, if you are criticizing not in love, we can do harm. To the individual. But if we are able to say something in love, the idea is not for me to get what I want, not for me to vent what I need, but ultimately you are caring for this individual that you're speaking to. You want to see their flourishing. Okay? So it's all a question, really, of the motivation. And for us, the motivation is God's love and the empowerment is the Holy Spirit. Answering other people's questions in, in your answer, there was another text message that says, how do we speak the truth in love? Um, and that's, that's just it. The, the heart motivation is what's there. Um, speaking the truth in love is not about technique. <laughs> it's about do you actually love? Is that what's in the heart? Because um, if it is, I think that'll come out. Um, any other questions in the room? I think we have time for one more. Okay. Then we're going to go to our tax line. Uh, okay. Um, okay, here's a, this is a tough one. Um, is righteous anger synonymous to the wrath of God? I mean, I think the wrath of God sometimes can sound very ominous, you know, as a word. Um, it's kind of like, you, you know, and, and there has been this view, you know, of like, you know, this, like you just have this sword hanging over your head, you know, and bang, it comes down, right? Um, that's not the kind of God. I think that, that, you know, we have a God that loves us, that cares for us. But there is also a time when God is saying enough is enough, Right? Um, God also is a judge. He is, but he's a perfect judge. And the other thing is that we're also called not to judge 
Because when we judge, Scripture is very clear about this, the very thing that we're judging the other person, we are judging ourselves of. And it doesn't mean we're not to speak the truth in love. We are called to speak the truth. So you see here what we're called to, people. Some of these things really require us to come before the Lord, right? Deeply, deeply before the Lord. If you're actually called to bring someone, it's a high calling to bring a correction to someone. It's a high calling. You bring it to God. You, 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 you know that you love this person, you care for this person, you ask for guidance, you ask for your own house to be cleared, and you make sure that you're also a person that is able to receive correction. I think if you're not able to receive correction, you probably shouldn't be correcting others. Anyhow, the Lord has all sorts of things here, but, but, but his desire... His desire for us is to be grieved. And I would say that when we see injustices in the world, I don't know what it is like for you, but I'll, I find myself getting angry at times. I'll see things and I'm angry about it. I believe that that is a God-instilled anger. But that anger is almost at the same point of wanting to weep. <laughs> kind of go from anger to wanting to weep about it. And it's not so much about me, but it's about the hurt being done to the name of God and to others. Yeah, and you know, the term wrath of God is, again, has a lot of, it often invokes things in our mind, and some of those things might be true in line with the Bible's terms, and some of them might not be. But one thing that's really important to distinct righteous anger that we might feel from the wrath of God is just to be reminded that we're not God. <laughs> and although we might have an anger that might even be righteous, we are not in the position of executing that <laughs> anger into, you know, an outpouring of wrath. Perfect justice. <laughs> Perfect justice. Like, I am going to execute justice. There's actually uh, a, a time in the scripture where it says, do not avenge yourself but leave it to the wrath of God, as in that's not your place. Uh, sometimes we just have to trust that God, uh, he will do that when and if he sees that it is, it is the fitting move. And something to be reminded about God's character is, yes, the wrath of God is certainly spoken about in the scriptures of lots of times, but that is reserved for people who... All day long, God stands with arms open wide, ready to, ready to receive, ready to forgive. All day long, all day long, that's his heart's character. That's that the character is hardened. And, and um, there is a wrath reserved for those who will all day long say no, 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 no. Um, so, um, thank you, Basil, for a great word. Uh, let me just pray, and then we're going uh, to worship. Father God... Father God, uh, I would ask that you would be stirring in our hearts to first recognize, to first recognize uh, the tables in our own hearts that need to be flipped over um, and replaced with just a real relationship with you, putting you first, seeking you first, resting in you, not resting in money, not resting in material things, uh, but realizing that you're better, you're worth more, and let us be people that, stirred by the joy of salvation, we are then able to go and love others and speak the truth in love. 
um, and truly know the difference between an anger that is based on righteousness and, and the anger that is the normal anger of man, God. Um, so just let us worship you now with hearts that just believe in your goodness and mercy. And, uh, and we pray this in your name. Amen.